In fact, the argument of the book is that Paul's old perspective is the new perspective on Paul. <laughs> and Paul's new perspective is something kind of like the old perspective on Paul. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. What you're about to hear is our very first recording before a live audience. This was at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, where I teach Old Testament as an adjunct professor. And this is in addition to my full-time role at Westminster Theological Center here in the UK. It was a great time, and hats off to Gar Anderson for a great book and discussion, and for everyone who came out for this. Uh, during the episode, I had a... Uh, I had a Pabst Blue Ribbon, of which I've now vowed never to partake again. Why on earth is that garbage trendy? Uh, it should have stuck with New Galeris. In any case, Gar Anderson is quickly becoming one of my favorite New Testament scholars, if we have to put up with them. And uh, I think you'll quickly know why after hearing this episode. Okay, let's get on with it. So welcome to the OnScript Podcast, very first live event. This is Matt Lynch. I'm hosting this episode at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, where I have the privilege of teaching in the summer. And I'm here today with Gar Anderson, professor of New Testament at Neshota House. So Gar, welcome to OnScript. Thanks for having me. So I'm wondering if you could explain a bit about your background in the Christian faith and your journey toward becoming a scholar. All right. I, I was probably just a little bit skeptical as a youngster and maybe in a kind of precocious, unhelpful way. So it's sort of natural maybe that I ended up doing what I was doing is uh, payment for my sins <laughs> in the way that I t taught my, uh, treated my Sunday school teachers over the years. So uh, one particular episode I remember when I was in fourth grade, um, our, our teacher was talking about the virgin birth. Now, I actually knew what a virgin birth was, but he didn't know that I did. <clears throat> so I asked Mr. Deal, what, what is a virgin anyway, Mr. Deal? <laughs> he became very uncomfortable, which gave me great pleasure. <clears throat> and then in ninth grade, um, we had a uh, high school Sunday school class, and I, I was the ninth grader and the youngest person in the class. And uh, one day in class, I, I, I told the Sunday school teacher I wasn't sure if he was getting something quite right. And he said, you know, if you're going to be such a wise guy, why don't you teach the class? And I said, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> so I took the rest of the semester and taught the high school Sunday school class. Um, and you know how it is. You learn the most when you're teaching. Yeah. So That's I, yeah. And so, did, did you teach on the book of Revelation? Of course. you would. That's where you would start naturally in... <laughs> So I grew up in a really wonderful evangelical Christian family, and uh, my uh, faith was very much nurtured in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a college student. I served on staff with InterVarsity campus staff for 18 years. So I kind of had a first career in campus ministry, and along the way I just took some classes for fun. And it was fun for me, and eventually it became fun enough that I thought I might want to make it my vocation. And uh, so uh, did an MA in New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity and then a PhD at Marquette. Um, and that led me uh, to my first professor job at Asbury Seminary. And then five years later, I came to Neshota House, where I've been for the last 10. Well, did you have any hesitations leaving campus ministry to go into academia, or was it you were thrilled to go that direction? Oh, no, I didn't expect actually to go in this direction. Mm -hmm. I did a PhD without expecting to get a job, mm -hmm. which I think is actually a pretty realistic expectation. Yeah, yeah, there's some, wise, <laughs> there's some wisdom in that. Yeah, yeah. so I, was, I felt very um, fortunate, very blessed to actually have an academic job, and then, you know, when you get one, it's easier to get another one. And uh, so no, no real hesitancy. Um, I felt that um, I had maybe outgrown my, my best years as a college uh, student minister. Yeah. yeah, and this was next. And, and going back to just your development in in your scholarly interests, I, uh, you noted in the introduction that your brother Cameron is also a scholar. 
or is it is it Cameron? Is that is that right? Yeah, is it, yeah, that, yeah. It's Cameron. I, I mean, yeah, a scholar. Okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> he's my older brother. He yeah. gets a lot of grief. Yeah. He's a he's a very thoughtful artist, is what he okay. is. Yeah. Right, I just wondered if that kind of shaped you as a as a mm. biblical thinker. If you guys played off each other and and spurred each other on, or was it you we're were kind of in different fields? And, yeah, really different fields yeah. and really different people. But he's kind of ying and to my yang. He's mm-hmm. a he's an artist, very creative. I'm not very mm-hmm. creative. I I can barely write my name. He makes beautiful paintings. Gotcha. So th- <laughs> we're quite different that way. But uh, he was kind of my role model growing up as yeah. a Christian young man of great integrity. Yeah. So uh, let's. I just wanted to move to your book now, uh, Paul's new perspective, charting a soteriological journey. And I was wondering if you could, first of all, explain the title, because there's real significance in the idea of Paul's new perspective. You're playing off something there. Well, right. So some of the folks here will know that there's been a long-running debate and a movement, I guess, in uh, Pauline scholarship that's called the New Perspective on Paul. And that was first coined in, most people say, 1983. You could make an argument for 1978, but right in there. <clears throat> and uh, the, the new perspective on Paul, we'll probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, but the the suggestion of the book is that Paul himself arrived at a new perspective. This is Paul's new perspective. And so the little uh, mischievous playfulness of the title is that Paul's new perspective, sort of where he arrived at in his doctrine of salvation by the end of his writing career, is actually somewhat different than the new perspective on Paul. In fact, the argument of the book is that Paul's old perspective is the new perspective on Paul. <laughs> and Paul's new perspective is something kind of like the old perspective on Paul. <laughs> All right. Does everyone have that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but, so yeah, we've got- I have to tell you, though, we, we, there were debates apparently among the marketing department about this title. Okay. And, uh, you know, wisdom is vindicated in her children by the book sales. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, this is not going to work. Um, <clears throat> People are going to see New Perspective and they're going to say, we've read that a hundred times, that book's mm-hmm. already out there, and they're not going to get the play on words. And uh, I think they're right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of these like private jokes yeah. that you feel good about, yeah. except for in your, yeah. in your pocket. But that's going cha- to change tonight. It will change tonight. This the is book- the beginning of a new thing here. Yeah, that's right. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with the old perspective and the new perspective, how do you concisely summarize those two perspectives on Paul uh, so that we can then talk about this development in Paul. Sure. Well, there's 50 pages in the book that concisely cover that. <laughs> yeah. So what else? Yeah. Well, I might, may, maybe you could uh, do a reading for us. Oh, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be special? Yeah. Footnotes included. So, so, of course, there's not an old perspective on Paul until somebody comes along and says there's a new perspective. Nobody ever talked about an old perspective. And, in fact, in the book, I... Uh, I, I uh, abbreviate New Perspective on Paul, NPP. That's pretty standard. And then, Are you down with NPP? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. And then um, I use TPP, uh, traditional Protestant perspective, for what people sometimes call the old perspective. Here's the basic idea. And there's really kind of two, two big ideas here. The first is the New Perspective follows in the wake of E.P. Sanders' very justly famous book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which came out in 1977. And Sanders made a long, extended, um, to many people, very persuasive argument about the character of Judaism that would have been contemporary with Paul and with Jesus and the primitive church. And the basic argument that Sanders makes is that we have misunderstood the character of Judaism contemporary with Paul if we thought that Jews at the time believed that they were somehow made right with God by um, virtue of their Torah observance. In other words, that they obeyed the law well enough or that their good deeds outweighed their their evil deeds sufficiently that God would, would accept them. And so Sanders is making the point that's not the way it worked in Judaism. The way it worked is that God made covenant, and by virtue of the initiative that God takes in making covenant with a people, we can almost describe that as grace. I don't think it's the best use of the word grace, but that's the way Sanders would say it. God takes initiative, and Torah observance, keeping the law, was just uh, the faithful response 
to God's initiative, but not meritorious in nature. Okay, so that's move one. <clears throat> but then that leads inevitably to a second kind of move. If that's right, then a whole bunch of things that people used to say and still say about Paul and the kind of arguments he was making about faith over against works, all of that might need to be reconsidered. And so the new perspective on Paul refers to the various strategies of reconsidering Paul in light of that background of Second Temple Judaism. And so there have been a number of strategies along those lines, but that's basically what we <clears throat> refer to as the new perspective. So, so your thesis in the book is that the new perspective on Paul gets it right, and the old perspective on Paul gets it right, but not at the same time. So right. maybe you could unpack how that's the case and where you see the new perspective on Paul getting it right. So if you know the, <clears throat> if you know the Enneagram, um, I'm a nine. So if you know anything about nines, nines are like peacemakers, <clears throat> that, that sort of person. I, I hate to think that I wrote 450 pages that's just a personality. Yeah. Uh, all, all scholarship is biography. It, it basically yeah. is, autobiography, right? Well, I just had a hard time believing that Pauline scholars who devoted so much attention to the details of the exegesis of Paul's letters could be so utterly at uh, odds and yet be and that they were all wrong. <laughs> And it seemed to me that as I explored the new perspective on Paul, which I found very exciting for you know several decades, that they were actually opening up some doors. I was seeing some things in Paul that started making sense for the first time. And yet there were other places where I didn't think it made very good sense. And so I just started to ask the question, is it possible that, that um, the new perspective on Paul is a better account of a certain phase of Paul's letter writing career and not such a good account or not as good of an account of a, of a later or of another phase. And then as it turned out, according to the chronology that I had worked out in the Pauline letters for on other grounds, it seemed to me that I saw a traceable development from his earliest letter to his latest last letters. And that's basically what launched the book. Uh, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize that you'd worked out the um, chronology of his letters prior to making the case about new perspective versus old perspective and where they fit. Yeah, in fact, um, there are a couple little details that if I could make the chronology fit my scheme a little better, I, could, I would make a few adjustments. Right. Okay. But I stuck to the chronology as uh, I thought the, where the evidence leads me. Um, that probably was not a good idea, right? <laughs> no, it's good. Okay. I think that lends it credibility. So uh, for now, another premise underlying your thesis in the book is that the Pauline corpus is larger than a lot of scholars think. Now, for, for a lot of our listeners, they're not going to really care or have strong opinions about which letters belong to the Pauline corpus and which don't. But for those who do, um, a lot of people don't consider books like help me here, I'm an Old Testament scholar, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, no, and no, no. that pastoral. Yeah, so Pastoral yeah. letters to be Pauline. That's not bad for an Old Testament guy. Okay, Philippians right. is Philippians is <laughs> <laughs> Philippians is, uh, is considered it's, it's authentic. Pauline. Okay, yeah. so obviously the short the short answer is we have thirteen letters ascribed to Paul, and uh, seven of them are vi virtually undisputed. Romans, the Corinthian correspondence, uh, Galatians, of course, First Thessalonians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. Those seven, the other six. Ephesians, Col Colossians, Ephesians, um, the pastoral epistles, and Second Thessalonians are, to varying degrees, sometimes doubted. Uh, at the f at the far end of most often doubted are the pastoral epistles, especially one Timothy and Titus. And at the near end of often thought authentic but frequently not would probably be Colossians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, if you had to give your elevator pitch for, let's say, then the authenticity of the pastoral epistles, and by authenticity I just mean written by Paul, yeah, what's your what's your case for that? Yeah, so the, the when we say authenticity, one of the things that we probably don't mean is that Paul had the pen in his hand and was doing the writing, mm -hmm. right? Because he didn't do that with Galatians or Romans and all or all the authentic. Yeah, and ones he pitches anyway. in sometimes like, see with what. Big letters, Great. I write this. That's right. Yeah. Galatians 6.11 yeah. is a good evidence <laughs> in that, it, it, right in that direction. So, so mm -hmm. what we mean is that they're written under the aegis and influence of Paul. 
right? Yep. So that, um, and the uh, the elevator pitch isn't isn't easy. Okay, but give it a try. Yeah, because there's a few few moves moves here. But um, it, the traditional argument against Pauline authorship is there's too much style and language variation. Mm-hmm. To think that the same person could have ra- written Galatians and one Timothy, for example, just they're written too differently. And if you read English, you can already sort of see it. And if you read Greek, it's pretty obvious. I don't think anybody can deny that that is the is the fact of the matter. But there remains the question: like, why is that the matter? Why is that the case? So if we make a, a possible allowance for a more maximal involvement of the amanuensis, the secretary that's responsible for for receiving the dictation and perhaps even giving shape to the letter. That could explain some of the stylistic uh, differences, differences in vocabulary and that kind of thing. What's most significant to me, though, about the pastoral epistles is the way in which they resist late first century and early second century uh, positions which had become standard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for one example that I refer to in the book, in the New Testament, we have no evidence of a threefold Christian office, a bishop, priest, and deacon, or presbyter and deacon. Do you see? I'm an I, I'm an Anglican, so I just said priest, um, bishop, presbyter, and deacon. Now we have all three of those words, of course, but it's fairly clear in multiple cases that a presbyter and an episcopos are two ways of naming the same persons, and a deacon is is yet a different thing. So we have two offices under three names. Now, it's pretty clear by the turn of the second century, we start to see an actual true threefold office with a monarchical bishop, and yet that's not what we see in the pastoral epistles. That doesn't make it authentic, but it's an argument that maybe we should think about this letter being earlier in time, because the only ecclesiology as it concerns office that we have in Paul is Philippians, where you have uh, elders and deacons in the same place. Mm-hmm. Right, so they're actually more uncommon. It, um, I, I might say it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and another one of your arguments is that part of the case for the pastoral epistles not being written by Paul is that there's development in in the book of Timothy that we see. And, and part of your case is that well, maybe that development happened within Paul himself, right? Yeah. So you're actually <laughs> reminding me of a probably a better argument than the kind I'm making, <laughs> which in fact I do make. Uh, throughout the book, yeah, we're just making the suggestion that some of the things that have caused scholars to say, hey, this is an authentic Paul, um, maybe a better way to think about it is that actually it fits a trajectory of a Paul that we've already gotten to know. And that it, it fits as the final movements, writing movements, um, and on a trajectory that's already familiar to us. Yeah, and how much do, uh, so I'm really outside to these debates, but how much do. Uh, New Testament scholars talk about the possible influence of Timothy or Sylvanus in the actual content of the letter, such that that might account for the change rather than a change within Paul himself or sure. different authorship entirely. Sure. So that yeah, those things definitely happen. That's more or less under the amanuensis okay. hypothesis, right? And that's granting a kind of maximal uh, 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 freedom of the amanuensis to make the apostles' arguments in maybe in their own words. Um, so that that's all certainly possible. Those are hypotheses hard to prove, but they yeah, do fit the they, they they do fit the character of the you know the way that letters were written. Okay. So it's at least you know we have to consider it possible. Um, but I think it's probably a better argument to say, look, you have occasion on the one hand, unique occasion, new challenges, new false teachings, you know, new opponents, and you have development on the other hand, and some of this can account for what we thought were theological outliers or even stylistic differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So, and we should make the point that making a case for Pauline authorship of these letters is, is just a stage on the way to your real argument, yeah, which is so. about development yeah. in, in Paul's letters. But one, one more... Um, so, so let me just say one more thing. Yeah, you, yeah. you went straight to the hardest case. The okay. pastoral epistles would right. be the hardest thing to sort of demonstrate okay. authenticity. Um, it matters more for my argument what one thinks about Colossians and Ephesians. Mm. And I don't want to s- say, I don't know if I made a better argument, but I think a better argument can be made mm-hmm. in both of those cases. Um, and then the pastoral epistles are sort of the icing on top. 
if we think about it that way. Yeah. Now, um, I guess another question then around authorship and all these things is why why does it matter to you that this development happens within Paul and not, let's say, within the Pauline school or mm-hmm. you know the the Pauline way of thinking? Right. What's at stake for you in authorship and 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 holding all this together in one person? Right. That's good. I mean, I thought very seriously about saving myself a hundred pages. <laughs> in <laughs> a, a lot of hard work that would convince few <laughs> and and making basically that argument look we have seven letters we have no questions about we have these six letters we have some questions about let's just consider them part of the Pauline tradition kind of the end run of the of the trajectory and let's not debate this and just ask you know what happened to, to Pauline thought where I think that that uh, would have been less interesting or less successful than what I tried to do was that I thought that I was watching a trajectory already through, say, Romans or Philippians, which you could argue are the final authentic letters. And it was almost sort of a shame <laughs> to not imagine that Paul himself could be responsible for what happens next. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and especially in Colossians and Ephesians, which the, that's where the book makes the, this kind of the strongest argument for authenticity. So if that's right, then it kind of changes the way you make these arguments. The way the new perspective and its critics have made their arguments is within seven letters, by and large. Mm-hmm. And, and would you say especially Romans and Galatians? Especially Romans and Galatians. Right. So uh, for a lot of people then, because they've lumped these letters together and not recognized developments within them, uh, they've seen Galatians as a kind of shorter version of Romans, right? Exactly. And and you want to push back against that, and yeah. so what's your pushback against seeing Galatians as the condensed version? Right. So the sh- it, it, this surprised me. I didn't know this before I started the book, but um, it was common knowledge knowledge in the Reformation that Galatians was the Reader's Digest, the bridged version of Romans, written later. So in the Reformation too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and I, I didn't I didn't know that, which is a kind of an interesting idea, and nobody holds that. There's, I think, no ground for thinking that that's the case. But it kind of shows you some momentum in biblical interpretation that's going in a certain direction. So it's sort of like Mark being the abbreviation of Matthew, according to certain synoptic problem hypotheses. N- nobody really holds it anymore, but it influenced, uh, influenced us nonetheless. <clears throat> so the basic argument that I would make is um, there can be a good case for Galatians being written rather early, as early as preceding the Jerusalem Council that we learn about in Acts 15, so that Galatians 2, the, Paul's meeting with the Jerusalem pillars, is, is not the same event, but a private event that precedes the Jerusalem Council. That, that could delay, date Galatians as early as 48 or 49. And then Romans, everybody agrees, is somewhere in the 55 to 58, 56, right in there. And that gives you maybe seven to nine years. And it would be surprising if some development didn't happen in that time. But the biggest argument for the difference between Galatians and Romans is that they're addressing um, actually opposite concerns. So Galatians is concerned with the problem of what we, what's called Judaizing, Gentiles converting to a Jewish way of life. Um, Romans is concerned with almost the opposite, namely Gentiles who feel themselves uh, to have outgrown or in, become indifferent to their Jewish heritage. Right? So Paul excoriates Gentiles repeatedly in Romans by saying, look, you guys, you don't exist apart from your Jewish heritage. There's one olive tree. Um, you were grafted on. You can't be indifferent to these people. And so, since you can't be indifferent to them theologically, you can't be indifferent to them as it concerns your day-to-day life and the way you live together, Romans 14 and 15. Right? So, there, so there's a Judaizing crisis for Galatians, and uh, I'll make up a word, ethnicizing, Gentilizing, ethnicizing crisis in Romans. And I think Paul makes some very similar arguments and applies them quite differently. Good. So before we get too far into developments in Paul, I wanna, I'm going to go back to, uh, or I, I want to change tack for a moment and, and look at the question of unity in Paul. So if we, if we start down the road of seeing all these developments in Paul, some might 
get concerned and think, well, where's the sort of center of gravity in Paul then? What endures through all his letters such that we can talk about a Pauline theology or something mm-hmm. like that? So so what would be your case for, or what would be what you consider the stable core of Paul's theology that really endures through his letters, or is it simply the trajectory of thought that is what Paul's theology is? Right. If that makes sense. No, it does. There's kind of an irony here, because um, more traditionalist or conservative scholars, in one sense, could have made more of development in Paul to make their arguments for authenticity, but they're a little nervous about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of an irony. And uh, wh- wh- what I would suggest is that, that maybe two kind of uh, a, a, st- a structural idea and then a uh, substantive idea. Um, structurally, when I'm talking about development, um, I'm not suggesting that development um, is best described as retraction. Mm-hmm. Right. I used to think, but now I think this. Right. It's a, a change. Um, I think a better way to think about it is that development is more like a acorn to tree. It's more like roots to flower, mm-hmm. right? So there's a continuity to it, but you can also see an unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, so retraction or that kind of incoherence mm-hmm. or inconsistency is not necessary to the notion of development. Then now if you ask, is there a stable core? Um, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that question. Mm-hmm. It's the gospel yeah. is the stable core. But the gospel is variable itself. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense that it changes, but it's differently applied. Yeah. Right? The Christ narrative is different appla- differently applied to different circumstances, and it's always the right mm-hmm. answer. So, so, for, for those, um, so, so for those of us looking at the Pauline corpus of Scripture, if, if it's acorn to tree, and the tree is the sort of goal of an acorn growing, What's the value in going back and looking at the acorn as scripture? You know, I mean, if that's the sort of less developed or the immature form of the later, yeah. what later becomes the tree. Yeah, so another way to think about that, so um, all of our metaphors sort of uh, only go so far and don't do everything we want. So I think another way to think about that is, uh, without retracting anything, um, <laughs> I think another way Multiple to think metaphors. about that, yeah, right, is that each um, each letter addresses its um, circumstance, as uh, J.C. Baker would say, as a word on target. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is this is the uh, application of the gospel to this circumstance, mm-hmm. and it has an enduring value as such, even if um, it, since there's no retraction, mm-hmm. even if Paul um, will settle into something a little bit more abstract or developed over time. Mm -hmm. So to give a kind of simple example, I agree with the new perspective on Paul that when it comes to Paul's letter to the Galatians, that it's it's profoundly sociological in nature, Mm -hmm. right? This is about, um, this is fomented by the crisis of, um, of Cephas and even Barnabas, of all people, not eating at Gentile table in Antioch. Mm -hmm. That's very sociological. And justification is the answer for that sociological problem that shows that Jew and Gentile not only can, but they must eat together at one table, being one people as Abraham's seed. Can you you just describe what you mean by sociological there? Yeah, well, uh, so having more to do with social social relations, Mm -hmm. like the structure and organization of communities, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So my point would be that that's an application of the gospel that's enduring. Like, Galatians still speaks to any number of contexts infinitely to the present day. Um, And we shouldn't lose it. By the same token, um, a similar set of concerns is addressed differently in Romans. And uh, there the... The problem of human guilt before God, which is shared equally by Jew and Gentile, who have become one people together in Christ, um, is also theologically rich and profound and timeless. Hmm. Right. So each of those, even though there's a development between the two, a kind of movement from horizontal to sort of vertical, they both have an enduring application. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I want to read to you a quote from the book. Okay. And, and this has to do with our good friend N.T. Wright. And uh, you, you are critiquing his work here, and I just wanted to get your, your take on it a little bit more. So perhaps the most disappointing feature of Wright's work from the vantage point of this project is 
His little interest in the development of Pauline thought and categories from letter to letter through Paul's career. So, and for those of you who are wondering who N.T. Wright is, New Testament scholar, and he just wrote a massive, what, 1,800-page volume? Two volume? 1,800, 18,000, right in there. Yeah, Yeah. somewhere in there. (laughs) Two volume (laughs) book on Paul. Okay, rather, Paul treats the whole Pauline corpus as a kind of single source whence can be drawn materials for his theologically constructive project. Not even the immediate circumstances of individual letters, to say nothing of trajectories between them, are of much interest to write. So that's that's pretty strong. Thank you. uh, (laughs) Oh, you mean uh, harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. Well, it it got me thinking back over Wright's work. Uh And... uh, it how do, how do you get away with not seeing the the differences and nuances between the books or is it is it that he's he's so constructive and synthetic in what he's doing that he doesn't even treat the books as separate letters with their own occasional circumstances and so on i, I think you just nailed it <laughs> okay well right. uh, so, answer so, my question yeah Good. yeah so i think i mean right is a is a master narrator mm-hmm and telling the big story from a high altitude, mm-hmm. I might add, with violins playing in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he waxes poetic, yeah. lyrical, with that big picture. And it's mm-hmm. very compelling. And it's really hard to disagree with him when you're wiping tears from your eyes, <laughs> right? Because it's so effective. Yeah. But I think he does that so well. I don't think even, um, you know, I suggest this in the book. I'm not even sure that it, it occurs to him just how synthetic and at what a high altitude he mm. operates, especially when he's working with Paul. Mm. Yeah, and, and thinking about his historical background's work in the first volume of that two-volume series. New Testament lot, and people, oh, oh the, the, um, the Paul book. Paul yeah. and the Faithfulness of yeah. God. It's, um, it, it's, it's all context setting. It's not specific to each book. It's, it's setting the big picture, again, right. of the first century and then right. going into the Pauline corpus as right. such. Well, uh, I think when, when uh, I mean... Uh, you know, among men born of women, none is greater than Tom Wright. So I, I, I adore him and am deeply influenced by him. Yeah. But um, I think that um, he's so articulate mm-hmm. that um, when it comes to this or that point of exegesis that doesn't seem to work, mm-hmm. he, he just eloquences Mm. himself through it and we're very satisfied by it because it it is it sounds good yeah (laughs) it really sounds good in fact i don't know that tom has ever written anything that i disagree with there are things that he has said that i don't think apply to this or that text Mm. Mm. but the thing said is right right (laughs) okay we're going to switch gears now and do a speed that's not going to be recorded is it oh no no, no, okay no not at all all right all right good okay the speed round and the idea here is i'm going to ask you a bunch of questions in rapid fire format and you have a maximum of about 10 to 10 to 13 seconds to uh answer them does that sound good yeah what's the consequence if i go over um i I will ring the bell you don't have a bell no i I will get the the little alligator there to bite you all right all right okay okay first question do you think the differences between paul and james are only on the surface no. Okay, excellent. What's the uh, most... <laughs> you, you are so good at this. Well, I'm brief. All right, okay, don't ask any yes or no questions. Right? <laughs> What's the most important book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Oh, 50? Yep. <sighs> Clock's ticking. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is really a bad... It's John Barclay, Paul and the Gift, even though it's very recent. Okay, well, that That's will a... answer your next... Well, maybe you've read this. Okay, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Best book I've read in the last year. I know you said you read your book this weekend, but well, let's yeah. let's keep that one out of the mix. Yeah, yeah that wouldn't be fair, would it? Um, this is painful. Uh, I I've read so, a lot of things that I just didn't love. Okay, last year. it's not been a good year, has it? No, not for, honestly, for reading, not so much. Oh, I'm really sorry yeah, to hear so that. Yeah, that's all right. Okay. I th- it was a little over a year ago I read Barclay, and I just haven't recovered. Yeah, pulling again. Okay, yeah, yeah was, that's so it good. Was really good. All right, next question. How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> <laughs> There's an answer to that, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I should break into an aria now. All right. What, what question do you most often field when you teach on Paul? What's the question that students most often come with? 
See, I teach Anglo Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> so all of the questions everybody else asks about Paul, they don't ask. Right. Um, they want to know why Paul doesn't say more about the sacraments. All right. That's good. Um, and the answer is, it's a good thing for us that the Corinthians were so messed up or we wouldn't know there was a Eucharist. <laughs> All right. How do you reconcile the crucified, non-retaliatory enemy forgiving love of Christ on the cross with Jesus' expectation of final judgment on God's enemies um, or the destruction of Jerusalem? So you've got, on the one hand, Christ's response to enemies on the cross. I thought this was like a friendly thing. Yeah, 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 this is. You've got, you've got ten seconds now. Well, all pacifism, Christian pacifism, is rooted in the vindication of the righteous vindication by God himself. Thus, it's never ours to take into our own hands, okay. nor to be God's judge. All right, good. What question most perplexes you as you wrestle with Scripture? Um, I mean, it's still the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to a very similar topic, beer or whiskey? Oh, beer. Okay, good. Craft, preferably, as I look at your PBR can. (laughs) Yeah. Where were you on 9-11? I was on the terrace at UW-Madison having coffee with a student. Mm. That was, I remember it well. Yeah. All right, what's the difference between icons and idols? Uh, Two different ways to translate the same word. Yeah. <laughs> one pejorative, one not. All right, good. All right, you've been asked to eliminate one state. Uh, which one and why? <laughs> I mean, it has to be Illinois, right? But, but they're sort of doing that for us. Yeah, okay. That's good. All right, well done. Um, all right, I, I want to pause here to just see if there are any questions that um, anyone in the audience wants to ask. Uh, I haven't really prepped you for that, but if anyone wants to jump in the question, please do. No speed round questions, please. <laughs> we can That's come ridiculous. back to those later. Oh, we've got a second speed round coming up later. Um, <laughs> all right. Oh, Travis, you have one. No biblical scholars, well, please. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, um, given that I was some interest in uh, chronological development in Paul, which is even even in my more conservative uh, take of that is still historical critical. How do I relate to canonical criticism, which tends to be a more thematic and I'll add the word synchronic kind of a uh, reading of Paul. So I'm I'm completely comfortable with that synchronic, um, canonical, uh, by synchronic, what we mean is like treating all the letters at the same time, right? Rather than treating them in sort of an order. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm comfortable with that canonical approach. It, it seemed to be for my project that it was the wrong approach. So there are a couple places in the book where I tip my hat to Brevard Childs and maybe his last published book was, uh, the, the Church's Paul, or whatever that was called, Canonical Approach to Paul. I think it's a very interesting book. I think it's very useful. It kind of helps you from getting stuck in the kind of details that this book almost gets stuck in sometimes. And yet I just felt like for my project, I could write an equally theological account of Paul without um, uh, backing down or backing away from those historical critical questions. So I just feel like they're different tools for different purposes. And it wasn't my purpose in this in this book. I, I'm a little suspicious when people who are doing really kind of in-depth philological, linguistic work in Paul um, uh, defer the question of authenticity or even order uh, chrono- chronological order and just kind of devolve to a canonical Paul. Mm-hmm. That feels like a little bit of an abdication abdication of responsibility. Great, great question. So the question is, um, if if we talk about a, um, 
a, a creative role for an amanuensis in the writing of a letter. Amanuensis is just our fancy word for secretary. It's just letting you know that you're at a seminary. Amanuensis. So it's a fancy word for, for secretary. If we allow for a highly creative secretary, at what point are we just not talking about somebody else being the author since they're exercising that kind of creativity? So I think the l- – let me illustrate my take on this with James Dunn and his really fine commentary on Colossians. Coloss- uh, James Dunn reads Colossians in Greek, and he says, you know, it's pretty clear to me, and I've done a little bit of Pauline scholarship, that whoever wrote Colossians, it wasn't the same person who wrote certain of these other Pauline letters. The style's different. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But then he says, but I think that uh, whoever wrote this wrote it under Paul's, well, Paul was alive, and with Paul's blessing and under Paul's direction. So I think the other question is, when is pseudonymity actually authenticity? Right, like that's the other side of that question, I think. So I would, to to use a more common day, uh, uh, present day illustration, let's say um, uh, I'm your uh, I'm your secretary, Rob. But that's a job I'd like to have someday. But we can only aspire. And you ask me to draft a letter for you, and I write up a letter, and you tell me what you're what you want it to get at and how you want it to read. I write it, and at the end you sign it. So who's the author of that letter? I mean, I would say even under that highly creative and almost independent scenario, that I'm the writer and you're the author because you signed it. So I think it's uh, completely plausible that in some New Testament examples we might be dealing with that sort of phenomenon. And that's why we need to be careful. Author doesn't mean writer, uh, but it does mean author. One yeah. more question here. Okay, so the question is, am I saying that Tom Wright isn't really understanding Paul because he's blinded by his kind of his convictions? I, I wouldn't want to say it that way. And what I mean there is, if, if you read um, Wright, so you read Paul and the Faithfulness of God, a masterful work. And it's a masterwork of Pauline theology. But what you're going to see him constantly doing is planting himself in a text on a theme and then using other texts to illustrate that, yeah, this is, this is what Paul sort of says everywhere. <laughs> um, it, it's not that he doesn't know the occasional differences between the letters, but they're contributing to a larger th- synthetic theological project. And I would say that's, that's a conviction that Wright has reached by reading the text closely and deeply over a long time. So I don't think, it, I, I wouldn't want to say that it's sort of his uh, prejudice overtaking. It's uh, in the end. It's a it's a lot of hard work, reaching a, a kind of synthesis, and it, it, it's just the approach that he takes. And, and Gar, are you saying that one of the things you're not wanting to lose, uh, or one of the things you don't want to do, is collapse too quickly uh, the the difference between texts, such that you lose the benefit gained by having those differences Precisely. between them? That's exactly right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Let's let's move on. We we can have some time for questions. Uh, further on as well, but I, I want to talk about some of the specific trajectories that you see in, in, in yeah. Paul, because that's sort of the point of the book. And let's talk, first of all, about the development in thinking about justification or the move away from justification as a, a major theme. Mm-hmm. So could you briefly outline that, what happens to it? Sure. And, so, how, and, and also the place it's occupied in discussions on Paul. Sure. So the... The, the place to start is to say that when, when we come to Paul, we can't come other than as Christians on the other side of a long history, soteriological debates about justification, specifically the debate that's gone on between Protestants and Catholics, and then among Protestants, and then among smaller groups of Protestants who are dividing ever more around justification, their union with Christ and his body. Anyway, that was a pun, or a little snarky, I guess. But... So so that's where we are. And so we have habits in our thinking that have been conditioned by that ecclesial and historical location, such that, uh, to use a kind of a simple example, it's not unusual for a Christian, even a theologically astute Christian, to swap out justification and salvation as though they're pure synonyms, that you could use one for the other, and they mean the same thing. And I think that that's, uh, that, that kind of thing is a problem. 
What we actually have in Paul is we have two letters that are, we could say, preoccupied by justification, and then we have an almost complete absence of the terminology in uh, all the rest of the letters. Almost a complete a absence. So it's Galatians and it's Romans. Mm -hmm. Well, what do Galatians and Romans have in common? Well, justification. They both the start with G. Oh, no, <laughs> never mind. Something like that. So what they have in common is they're both uh, preoccupied with the relationship of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And so what I'm arguing in the book is that justification mm -hmm. is a particularly apt soteriological metaphor to deal just with that, circum with that circumstance in particular. Why does it work so well for that? I, mean, I think the, the argument of the book is that um, it's because justification um, shows in a binary terms an equal kind of footing. Hmm. Right? So justification is a, is a one or a zero, on or off, yes or no. And Jew and Gentile are equally justified on the same grounds of faith, apart from law-keeping or, or works, as the case may be. And that's what puts them on equal footing. Justification describes that really well. All kinds of other uh, biblical metaphors, Pauline metaphors, can say other things about salvation, but they don't make that point quite so, quite so explicitly. And then, of course, I think the other thing is that in Galatians, Paul is um, making a profoundly biblical argument, and he's using key Old Testament texts, Genesis 15.6, uh, Habakkuk 2.4, um, that show faith and righteousness being in an intrinsic relationship long before the giving of the law. So that kind of donates the vocabulary and the, and the metaphorical field in which he works. So as justification fades into the background, as we move through the Pauline corpus, yeah. what comes into the foreground? Right. So what I show in the book is that um, Paul prefers, and I'll focus on two particular soteriological metaphors. He, he prefers uh, sozo and soteria, so save and salvation. Um, and... So just to give you a kind of example that I, I find striking, those, that language, as ubiquitous as it is in Paul, is never found in Galatians, which I argue is his first letter. Hmm. By the time he writes Romans, salvation and justification coexist, but they're never treated as synonyms. Hmm. There's distinctions between the two. Okay, so that, and, and then following Romans, we never see justification again, save for a lone reference hmm. in Titus chapter 3. So justification fades, as it were and uh, soteria, sozo, come to the fore. Another example, and you might be thinking of this one, is the way Paul uh, adopts and latches on to reconciliation mm -hmm. as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. We don't see anything like that in Galatians. We mm -hmm. see it enter the Pauline bloodstream in 2 Corinthians 5 in a big way, and then it coexists with justification and, sa uh, and salvation, soteria, in Romans and it, and it plays the primary role in letters like Colossians and Ephesians. So there's, there's a move in that case from a forensic or juridical metaphor that serves its purpose to a more relational metaphor that um, I, I, I think uh, Paul regards in some ways as more fulsome, more adequate for what he's describing. Yeah, that's good. And, and some, of the, some of the other ideas that you see developing through Paul are works, you see grace, you see, um, uh, well, we've already talked about salvation, reconciliation. One of the questions I had while I was reading it was to make a claim for development or a trajectory, you have to have enough data points. Mm -hmm. And do you think that for uh, some of these topics, specifically reconciliation, you have enough data points to make a claim of a clear development mm -hmm. and not just this letter happens to need this language to mm -hmm. deal with this situation, but if you dropped it out of the corpus, you wouldn't really have a trajectory. You would just have the loss of that letter and its, its language. So it's data points question. Right. Matt, you, there are tables in this book 
<laughs> and yes. and I think they're convincing. Okay. Okay. No, <laughs> no, I, uh, no that's, that's. I did a, look at the tables. <laughs> apparently, they were convincing. No, I, I think that's exactly the right question. That's a, it's a great question. So it's not just like, and, and I try to make the point in the book. It's not like if I can uh, give a digital like graphing of word uses, like I've done some kind of exegesis mm. or made an argument for trajectories or something. I don't, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's also how they're used, mm-hmm. right? So what you see in Romans is that the fruit of justification is reconciliation, mm-hmm. right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the outcome of justification. Mm-hmm. And it's an outcome not not of interest in Galatians, for example. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that he would disagree at that point, but it's not mm-hmm. something he works out. But then, then when we, we see reconciliation kind of taking on a, a function, a role that moves us into the second phase of Paul's argument in Romans, yeah. right? So, that, that, which is that um, moving past the juridical toward the relational and transformative, mm-hmm. which is what occupies us at, from chapter five forward mm-hmm. or, or beyond. So, I think it's not just that they are used, but how mm-hmm. they're used, and then the prominence of reconciliation as the as the payload carrying metaphor in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians and Ephesians, mm-hmm. I think, suggest something like a trajectory. I, I thought that part of the book was really helpful. And, and what I liked was that you, you demonstrated how the new perspective on Paul has been maybe overly preoccupied with recon- not using the term reconciliation, but Jew-Gentile relationships, mm-hmm. which is a kind of horizontal relationship, social relationship, but not enough on the way that Paul emphasizes reconciliation with God. That's right. And I was, think, I was reading that thinking... You know, what's the pushback from a new perspective on Paul type person on to that to that point? Are they going to say, oh, my goodness, I forgot about reconciliation with God? Or are they going to say that's the hope, <laughs> actually, <laughs> or are they going to say we assumed that, but we're talking about something else? I'm just trying to think through. Surely that's been yeah. addressed somewhere. Well, so I'm 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 going to I'm kind of waiting yeah. to see if that has any traction. Mm, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that Tom Wright is very aware of this lacuna in his own work. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, reconciliation is just not on the table for him mm-hmm. until Paul and the faithfulness of God. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes the huge theme at the beginning of the book and an even bigger theme at the end of the book. Right. Right. So, but, so at the beginning it's Philemon, right. where you have, but that's horizontal, horizontal reconciliation. Right, that's right. That's right. right? And then I forget the end. Maybe yeah, well, at the end far. of the book, it's the reconciliation ta panta. Uh, it's the uh, reconciliation yeah. of everything. Cosmic. It, well, cosmic it's cosmic. It's intellectual. Yeah. It's uh, interpersonal. It's, you name it. It's the reconciliation yeah. of everything, which, of course, is lovely. And Ephesians lets, in Colossians, in some ways, let us go there. Right. But I don't think it actually influences in between mm. all the material sandwich in between where the kind of soteriology proper is for right. Okay, and that's where your book really, yeah. I think, makes its major contribution. I hope so. That's yeah. that was a, that was a hope. It, it, it struck me in reading Dunn and Wright and these guys I you know mm-hmm. admire and learn so much from, but it struck me that they didn't talk about this very much, and yeah. I wondered why. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get them on, and uh, maybe we could we could <laughs> we could phone them right now. Okay. Are you ready for another speed round? Okay. I'm I'm just recovering, but okay. <laughs> okay. Excellent. I think that was a yes. All right. What's something funny or embarrassing that happened to you recently? You know, you try to repress those things. <laughs> huh? You're among friends. You're among friends. You can share these things. Yeah, right, right, right. So I was the, this is kind of nice in a way. I was the chalice bearer Sunday at church mm-hmm. and uh, administering the blood of Christ just uh, choked me up in some cases mm-hmm. to some people. Mm-hmm. I don't know, is that embarrassing? No, that's good. But it, I was, you know, you didn't it, want to make a big deal you, you out of it. You took it in a heartwarming I kind of did, didn't I? I think yeah, that's good. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Tell us something we didn't already know about the New Testament. <laughs> Besides what you've told us today. So far? Well, um, maybe, maybe like a uh, little known yeah, fact. Little about, known fact? Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? You know, don't you? What is it? He said. No. Is it? What is it, everybody? I, I, everybody well, knows. No, but there's also it's what wrong. he said, isn't there? No, you're wrong. It's... Pantatakaireta, rejoice always. Mm. One okay. Thessalonians chapter four. That's the sh- in Greek. Ah. <laughs> by letter and by syllable, the shortest verse in the whole Bible. So there you go. 
Hey, that's, that's good. and you'll make friends at parties with that. Okay. <laughs> All right, for sure. All right, what's what's your uh, your your advice for for those who are studying theology, but their parish or home churches are skeptical of the endeavor? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, rule number one: you know how Matilica's exercise yeah. for young theologians. Read yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, the, one of the gists of the book is, um, don't be a jerk. Mm-hmm. So what happens, I think, is um, they have reason for being skeptical because people, um, people become smart asses mm-hmm. um, with just a little theology. Mm-hmm. So show them by um, virtue of life and uh, by helping them see a new thing that shows, gives glory to God. And uh, you might overcome their skepticism. That's good. What inspires you about the New Testament? Jesus. Good. All right. Keeps you busy. (laughs) Estimate the number of books in your personal library. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Just give a number. A number? Yeah. I don't know. 1,500? Okay, good. Uh, Would you be willing to sing something for us briefly, like 15 seconds worth? You have to assign it. I can't just... Okay. Um, no, I don't. Uh, maybe it's, someone, it'll be my way. Does anyone, does anyone have a request? Frere Jaca. I don't. It's French, right? Like, I don't yeah. know French. Yeah. Frere Jaca, dorme. I can't remember that. <laughs> it's got to be English. Sona it's got to be English. Right? I mean, the English choral tradition is sort of my, okay. my thing. So. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't how about that. a Justin Bieber song? So no Justin Bieber. Okay. Well, Want to be? How about how about the Greek alphabet? What a geek. All, All right. right. <laughs> Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, yoda, kappa, lambda, mu. You want the rest? Yeah, keep going. Nuke, C, omicron, P, rho, sigma, tau, upsilon, phi, ki, pa, C, omega. You missed a letter. Did I? No. Okay. <laughs> well done. <laughs> okay. Um, a wild turkey walks into a bar and orders a beer, and the bartender says what? Uh, you have to finish the joke. I, I know. That's not fair. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. All right, good. All right, if you... All right, if you... I like it. If you had to walk away from studying and, and teaching New Testament today and there were no jobs in the church, what career would you take up? It, this is, like, almost realistic. Yeah, you're all... <laughs> <laughs> is there something I don't know about? Yeah, well, uh... So, I, you know, I'd probably be involved in, like, uh, probably, like, counseling or something. Okay. Therapy. That's good. I mean, getting it. Because <laughs> <laughs> of what I've been doing for all these years. All right. right. All right. Good. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move to the final portion of your book, and we're on the home stretch here. Uh, you're, and the, toward the end of your book, you, you kind of give two pleas on page 384 in particular. And the first one is that justification ceased to be the center and preoccupation of Pauline scholarship. And second of all, that union with Christ assume its place as, quote, the central integrative fulcrum of Pauline soteriology and all of its juridical, relational, transformational, and ecclesial dimensions. Okay, so maybe you could just unpack what you, um, why you see Union with Christ. This is kind of a new thing we haven't really even well, talked no. too much about yet. Yeah, why I kind should of missed that, that earlier, too. Yeah. <laughs> why should that be the center or move toward the center of our thinking about what Paul's really on about? Yeah. So, so let me just say something about justification. Okay. And then I'll move to that one since that you, you, you brought both points up. So um, I, it's not just that I'm tired of reading about justification. <laughs> I've contributed to it by writing about it. Um it's that um, the, these pitch battles happen at a place that um, makes you know, the discourse causes ju- justification to be more central to Paul than it is to Paul. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's kind of misshapes. It distorts what uh, the, the whole thing that, that Paul was about. And obviously, not that it's not important, not that it's not interesting. Um, union with Christ is a better center um, because under it... Uh, all the rest makes sense. Mm-hmm. Justification makes sense. Uh, 
pro- is properly understood only in the notion of union with Christ. Mm. So that Christ's death and, and uh, Christ's resurrection, Christ's uh, victory in God are ours, not mm. by some kind of commercial transfer, that he, he, he has something and he can give it to us if we exercise, you know, like a pin number called faith. Mm-hmm. Right? Like not some kind of mechanical uh, uh, transfer of a sort, but, but because united with Christ, everything that God has done in Christ and for Christ is ours. Mm. He's done for us and in us. So thus union with Christ holds together things that are too frequently separated from each other, like the idea of justification and, say, what Protestants usually mean by sanctification, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which don't have any kind of intrinsic logical relationship unless it's all about um, union with Christ. And, of course, then that's ecclesial, Mm -hmm. right, because we understand union with Christ is not just a mystical ideal, um, and it, or a subjective sense of fellowship, but it's uh, actually ontologically so and sacramentally mediated in the church. Mm-hmm. Right, so things start holding together that had previously fallen apart if the focus is on union with Christ. Plus, it's in all the letters. Mm. Yeah. Good. Well, I think that's a good place to end. And, uh, Gar, this has been a really enjoyable interview, and thank you so much for coming on Nonscript. Thanks for having me. Do some good edits, and I think we can make something of this. (laughs) All right. right. Let's give him a round of applause. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.